This morning's reading is taken from John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the wine that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. You may have heard of a Christian writer called Adrian Plass. You might not have done. Adrian Plass has been writing for a number of years. He um, has written a lot of books. He speaks a lot. Um, He runs retreats. He's working a lot at Scargill House in Yorkshire at the moment. And he's a, a big Christian name. And, of course, behind every big Christian name is a wife, often. And his wife is Bridget. And Bridget Plass equally is talented and has a lot to give. And she has shared a lot in Adrian's ministry. Adrian suffered from depression uh, for a long time um, before he became a, a Christian writer. And it was a real struggle. And it was a deep, deep depression that he was in. And and Bridget supported him through that. And and Adrian talks very humorously about how God lifted him from depression and turned him into this big name. Bridget, through that time, struggled, thinking, you know, here I've been, solidly beside my husband, supporting him, and now he's got fame and fortune in Christian circles. Um, What about me? And she felt quite bad about this. And so she took herself off on retreat on one occasion. She wanted to be really honest with God and to rediscover who she was in him because she didn't like these thoughts that she was having. So she went off on retreat by herself. Um, I think they had four children, so even some time away from the family was refreshment itself. But she had an amazing encounter with God on this occasion. And she felt really close to him. She was able to put aside all her her, um, anger and her frustration at being this wife that was just always there behind the scenes and felt a renewed relationship with God and felt ready to go home. In fact, she was desperate to get back home. She was healed, restored, living in the love of God, ready to go home. But the snow came down and the weather forecast was horrendous. And all the news was saying, if you don't go unless you absolutely have to drive. But she was desperate to get back home. And so she set off. And as she was trying to drive from Yorkshire back to where they lived, the snow got heavier and heavier 
All the warnings are on the radio saying you mustn't do this. And this is what she writes. All the euphoria that I had experienced over the last few days had gone. And I felt frightened and vulnerable. So much for my renewed closeness with God. So much for feeling that he really did care deeply about me after all. Visibility became even worse as tears began to pour down my face. I was 200 miles away from home, freezing cold, and what was more, it was beginning to get dark. And at that moment, my car gave a groan and shuddered to almost a halt. I was aware of someone swerving to avoid me. Now I was slithering at two miles an hour, sure that any minute I would be hit. In front of me, I could just make out a sign indicating a turning to the left. And feeling that anything would be better than breaking down on the motorway, I wobbled the car onto a side road. I could see nothing at all. My lights must have gone down, I thought. And immediately, with a horrifying bang, the car stopped completely. I sat there in the pitch darkness in my dead car and cried out to God in desperation. Then I opened my eyes. There to the left of me, its blurry lights just visible through the driving snow was a cafe and a travel lodge. Now I've heard of people who believe that God runs ahead of them every time they go to the supermarket just to reserve a parking space for them. And quite honestly, I don't have a lot of time for the idea that Christians should expect continual privileges. But I do believe that on that night, God arranged exactly when and where my car broke down. That night, having phoned both home and the AA, I sat warm and safe in a bed with a cup of tea, watching horrendous television news pictures of abandoned cars on motorways up and down the country. I will never forget the sense I had of my Heavenly Father very close to me saying, I had to prove to you somehow how wide, long, high and deep my love is for you, you stubborn woman. It's a lovely story, but why have I told you that? Why did I want to share this with you? Today we're going to be thinking about God intervening on earth and why he might do that. And there's two things I want to point out from this story of Bridget Plass. She was sure without doubt that God was involved in the outcome, that God was intervening in events on earth. And secondly, she was sure that the reason he did that was to show her his love. So God intervened on earth for a particular reason. And that's what's going on in our passage in John. This is the first of seven miracles that John writes about. If we turn to the other Gospels, we read many, many more miracles. John chooses to write only about seven He could have written about more, and at the very end of the Gospel he says, yes, I could have written more. In John chapter 20, 20, he says this, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. So he's deliberately chosen only to write about seven. And in chapter 20 he goes on to say this, but the ones that are written that are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. When John talks about miracles, he uses a Greek word called semea, which means signs. And we've seen that, uh, um, as we had this read at the end in uh, verse 11. This is the first of his miraculous signs. 
He uses this for those seven miracles. They're supernatural acts. That's something that couldn't have happened other than God's intervention. But John shows how there's a particular reason why they all happened. They all say something about Jesus. They show he's the son of God. And they reveal something about the Father. We might think of them a little bit like signposts. The event in itself is quite remarkable, miraculous. But far more important is the meaning behind it and the reason that they have taken place and what they tell us about Jesus and about the Father, what they are revealing. They wouldn't have happened, John is showing, if they didn't show us something about Jesus. So they're written so that people may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. This is what he says here. And that belief that Jesus is the Son of God will affect them as people, will transform them, will give them life in all the fullness. So a little bit of background. Um, I've got a PowerPoint. Just to show you what the seven miracles are in the Gospel of John. So the first one is this. It's the water into wine. And he says here, he lays it out, this is the first of the signs that Jesus performed to show, to reveal his glory. The second one is the healing of the royal official's son. Let's keep moving on. The third one, healing of the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. Two healing miracles. The next one, the feeding of the 5,000. Next, walking on water. And the next one, healing of the man born blind. Another healing miracle. And the next one, the raising of Lazarus. And that's the final one. So all different types of miracle. But each time John writes about one of these miracles, he's writing about it with this idea of it being a sign. And so we read them with the question, what is this telling me about Jesus? What is this showing me about the Father? What is it signposting towards They were all recorded, performed, in order to reveal the glory of God. So each miracle tells us something about the kingdom of God. We've used that language before, the kingdom of God. That's really the rule of God. The rule of God that is breaking in on earth. And each of those miracles is revealing something about God's kingdom. What it will be like in finality, but where we see it in these little moments on earth. And the miracles, the signs are a bit like a treasure hunt. There's clues if we choose to look at them. And we can look at the clues and from that understand something about Jesus. So let's look at today's passage and hunt for the clues. So, what are the clues? I have got one, two, four clues. The first one is the actual setting. This is a wedding that is taking place, common event, People gathered, they lasted for days, weddings, um, and the importance of hospitality was really strong. And so the embarrassment of running out of wine at the wedding would be something that would be resonating amongst all the people. They'd understand the embarrassment and the horror of that. And we could just think that this happened and, and this is what went on. It just happened to be a wedding. But if we stop to think about the symbol of a wedding, we realize that throughout the Old Testament, 
The image of God, or one of the images of God, is that of a bridegroom. And that the people of Israel are the bride. So already, if you are a Jewish person, and you're looking at Jesus and thinking, there's something more that's going on here, the clue would be saying, aha, this is a wedding. Now, I know something about a wedding. This is telling me something about God. And the ultimate wedding banquet that is the picture of life eternal. So the setting is symbolic from the very beginning. And what happens in this wedding will be a foretaste of that wedding feast that will one day happen when God's kingdom reigns on earth. So what will the kingdom be like? Well, let's have a look at what happens within this wedding and see what we see about God within that. So that's clue number one. Clue number two is the stone jars. Now again, very functionally, if you are going to turn water into wine, you need a receptacle to put it in. And I often read this thinking, you know, there were the six stone jars, they're the closest to hand, let's just use those. But if you look at how they are described, they're described as the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Now, I've always focused on the size of them and the generosity of God's provision. And I worked out once how many bottles of wine that actually was, and it's, it's quite phenomenal. I can't do that now in my head. Somebody probably will by the end of the sermon. But actually, the word ceremonial is the clue. So these were jars that were set aside for use of being made clean. And think about the Jewish faith. Being made clean is hugely important. Jesus chooses these jars, not just because they're the closest to hand and the largest, but because of what they represent. They were used in the process of being made clean. And Jesus uses them in a different way. And Jesus uses them. So the clue is there's going to be something different in the way in which we are made clean. And Jesus is going to be part of that. I think this is Jesus before he's really begun to do anything. He's not really begun to say anything at all. And already he's laying out his ministry and what it will be. We know that it's through Jesus' death that we are made clean. That is the change that will happen in the understanding of faith. And so the clue is the ceremonial jars used in a different way and used by Jesus. And then the miracle happens. These enormous jars are filled with water and they turn into wine. And the wedding has been going on for a little while. And the custom was to start with the best wine and then as the wedding continued and people were less aware of what they were drinking, the cheaper wine came out. And when the master tastes this wine, he's overwhelmed and says, you know, this is the best wine. You've kept the best for last. So what is the clue there? What does that tell us? Jesus offers the best. This is a sign of what is to come. This is a sign of what the kingdom will look like. The kingdom is about God's lavish love and generosity. We sometimes think, or people looking in at at what it means to be a Christian think it's all about rules and regulations and how you live a very restricted life. But the picture of this is of abundant generosity, of the best of lavishness. 
That is the picture of the kingdom of God. And so it's not a mistake that Jesus produces the best wine if we're thinking about it symbolically. And then finally, looking at the miracle as a whole, what is happening is that there is a transformation. Water is turned into wine. Something very ordinary is turned into something amazingly special. And that is a symbol of the transformational work that goes on when Jesus comes into our lives. Something very ordinary becomes something very, very special. And Jesus does transform. The transforming continues on and on and on until the day we die and meet him in heaven. But we need to believe in a God of transformation and not think that that's it over and done when we first meet with Jesus. We're the finished product. No, we are not. We should long for that transformational work in our lives to continue. Water into wine. I want to be the best wine, not the cheap plonk. And it's Jesus at work in my life that does that. So verse 11 says this. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Because the disciples were able to see what was truly happening. They were seeing it for what it actually was. They could spot the signs, they could understand the clues, and they could see, therefore, what that meant. And so it was easy for them then to put their faith and trust in Jesus because they'd seen it for themselves. I wonder, those disciples who watched this, observed that, when they went back home that day, I wonder what the first thing they would have said to somebody. I wonder if they said, you'll never believe it. I saw a man today who changed water into wine. Or whether they ever said, you'll never believe it. We met with Christ who changed my life. And I think that would have been the more important thing that they would have gone away with. Yes, there was a miracle. Yeah, fantastic. But actually, the most amazing thing is that we met with Christ and he's changed my life. The miracle is secondary to the meaning of it, to the impact of it, and to what it has done in the disciples' life. So through performing miracles, Jesus reveals his glory in order that people can put their faith and trust in him. He's not a showman. He's not doing this to get a crowd around him. He's a miracle maker, yes. He intervenes supernaturally but in order that others might understand more about him and put their trust and faith in him. So let's go back to Bridget Plass. And let's think about that and think, what's going on there? Is that a miracle? And in some ways, I don't want to go too far down what's a miracle and what's not. We could look at it and say, yes, in many ways, there may have been a supernatural intervention that meant that that was where she, her car broke down directly outside the travel lodge. Or we could say it was a whole lot of coincidences that came together. In some ways that argument doesn't really matter because what Bridget Plass felt was that God intervened in her life at that moment. And because of God, she ended up in that place of safety. But more importantly, that intervention and that involvement of God reassured Bridget of God's love for her. And yes, the story is mostly 
about what happened because she needed to tell that story. But the most significant part of it is that end bit. I had to show you how high and deep and wide and long is my love for you, you stubborn woman. Don't you get it? I've just spent the whole time. You've come on retreat and you have met with me. I have showered you with my love. You've gone away knowing it and at the first bit of problem, you've forgotten it. You were probably on that motorway thinking, where are you now, God? I thought you loved me. And don't you get it, woman? I love you no matter what is going on. That is why it happened. And that is her story and that is why she was able to actually recognise what had been going on. So does God intervene in our lives? Do miracles happen today? And if we take it at that broadest question, does God intervene? Do we have a God who is remote and not involved in our lives? Or is God involved in a way that is supernatural, beyond our understanding? And I think, yes, he does. I strongly believe that God intervenes supernaturally with things and events on earth. I've read about many. Some ways I've seen some myself. It's always questions. I don't see as many as I would like to see. I don't see as many as we read about in other parts of the world. If you were to go to parts of Africa, there'd be endless stories of miracles happening. Healings, transformations, people being protected supernaturally in difficult war situations. Maybe in safeness of the UK, we don't need to rely on God quite so much, which is why we don't see him intervene quite so much. I don't know. These are all unknown questions and I'm not going to try and answer any of that. But if you pushed me against the wall and said, do you believe that God intervenes supernaturally on earth? I would say yes, absolutely. And if that means do I believe in miracles, then yes, I believe in miracles. Why does he intervene? For the same reasons that John writes about. So that people can understand more about him and follow him and trust him and be transformed. Before this passage, the verses before talk about Jesus meeting Philip and Nathanael, two of the first disciples. And Nathanael is drawn to Jesus because Jesus is able to tell him that he was sitting under a fig tree. That word of knowledge in, common, in our current Christian language. Jesus couldn't see him under the tree, but he knew he was there. And Nathanael's blown away thinking, goodness me, there must be something special about me because you knew that I was sitting under the fig tree. And Jesus says this, he says, you believe because I told you, I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And I like to think of miracles a little bit like that. It's about those moments when heaven opens and touches earth. When there is that sense that this is beyond my normal comprehension, beyond what I normally experience, heaven has opened in an amazing way and is touching earth, the kingdom of God, which reigns now but is coming in in an incredible way and touching. So I want to share some stories of, of why I believe this. 
And it's been moments where there's been a sense of God's presence, perhaps, when it shouldn't have been the case. That's my, my first example. I, um, I'm not even sure I was ordained at the time. I think I was just first ordained. And there was a phone call into St. Saviour's to say that one of the members of the congregation had gone in to give birth. But sadly, the baby was going to be stillborn and wanted somebody to go. And we didn't quite know how long it was going to be. And I offered to do that. It didn't happen during that day. But later that evening, we got a phone call from one of the midwives um, at my home to say, could you come? The baby has been born. I went up with huge trepidation, not knowing what on earth I was going to encounter. Really worried. The midwife, who was also a church member, explained to me what I would see, which was really helpful. And I waited to walk into this special room where the parents were with their stillborn child. And I wasn't quite sure what to expect. But it wasn't what happened when I walked into the room. I walked into the room and immediately felt God's presence. You might say, well, how on earth do you know that? It's almost like overwhelming feeling over you and it's almost blown off your feet. It was, oh, my goodness me. There's something here. And this couple were sat on the bed, cradling their baby who had died with love, with, with tenderness. The incredible thing was the feeling of peace in that room. Now, humanly speaking, there should have been trauma and anger and frustration. But in that moment, I know God was there. God was there holding them. And as I say, it was physically tangible. As soon as the door opened, I walked in and I could feel it. Is that a miracle? What it is, is God intervening on earth. God intervening and changing a situation from what it should have been to something completely different. They knew it. I knew it. God was present. Now, that will live with me forever. Because that doesn't happen very often. That whole sense of God's presence changing, transforming a situation. It wasn't a miracle in that the baby had died. But the miracle was the, the peace and the way that they were able just to spend those precious minutes, a couple of hours, with their baby that will stay with them for the rest of their lives. I hear stories of people encountering God in amazing ways. Some of you here have told me stories. I've been in a room where I didn't necessarily expect anything to be going on, uh, but people talking about meeting God, people who don't go to church, were talking about God's presence in their lives more than sometimes I hear people talk about who are in church. Quite remarkably so. People walking on Blackheath and just being overwhelmed by feeling this God, this presence with them. Is that a miracle? It's God intervening on earth, making himself known. I took a funeral of a, a man in his early 40s who was an alcoholic, who died tragically, who had, um, had a, an amazingly big job in the city. And his widow, the, the wedding, the funeral was going to be so large that they wanted to have it at the cathedral. And it was full of people from the city. Not an environment I feel particularly comfortable in at all. And it was 
traumatic and there was a real sense of loss and it wasn't a particularly uplifting funeral. It was just full of angst. I think angst is the best word. Because these, a lot of them were young men in their 30s encountering mortality when they were living successful lives. For some of them it was the very first time. And you could just feel the rawness of it all. And the widow um, emailed me later, a few days later, um, because people had been getting back in touch with her about what had happened. And she said, on the steps of the cathedral were two men who were kind of looking at each other quite dumbstruck. And one said to the other, said, I have no idea what happened in there, but God was there. Men who didn't ever talk about God. But in that moment of, of trauma and angst and rawness, they encountered God. Enough to talk about it, enough to tell somebody else and for that person to communicate that back to the widow who then communicated it to me. They couldn't explain what it was. But they said something happened in that place. And I think it was God. Quite remarkable. And then if you go on pilgrimage, there are some places that are thought of as thin places where the gap between heaven and earth just seems a little bit thinner. And you can go to a place where you feel that presence of God. Iona is a place like that. Iona is an island off the west coast of Scotland. St. Columba landed there and brought Christianity to Scotland. And it's an island that has been full of prayer since St. Columba arrived. And there's something about that that feels it's a thin place. People go intentionally, and there's something about intentionally going somewhere where it's easier to encounter God because you're intentional about it. But it's also the sense of centuries of prayer. And it feels a thin place. It's easier to experience God. So does God intervene in our lives? Yes, he does. Some of those things might be supernaturally miraculous. Some of them might be quite remarkable. We might see, and I have seen, people healed. And let's not stop holding out for those miracles. But there's also a sense in which God intervenes supernaturally. At times, to comfort, to reveal himself, to help us on our journeys. And so my challenge, always, is to keep my eyes open. Because the clues are there. God is at work. It's me that has shut my eyes and don't see him at work. I believe he's constantly involved in our lives. But we need to keep our eyes open, to watch for what he is doing, to capture the moments, to understand them for what they truly are. Maybe I need to change my filters. But more than anything, I need to live with expectation. Jesus is the same yesterday, today and tomorrow. And if Jesus is a miracle maker in John's Gospel, he's a miracle maker today. And I can know him as that in my life. And that's what I want to do. Because I want more stories. I want more stories that speak of God's glory revealed through what he is doing. Amen.